My name is Matt. For those of you I haven't met before, and you're like, wasn't the last guy's name Matt? Yes. The majority of the men in this building are named Matt. Um, and it just works out. So if you forget someone's name, just ask if, if their name is Matt, and you will more likely than not be correct. Uh, we are uh, in a series, a new series this week that we are titling our vision series. And so what we uh, want to do as we head into our fall rhythm uh, is really celebrate a couple things. Like Matt Deason said, uh, we are celebrating one year from when we launched as a church with weekly gatherings uh, in the evening. For those of you who were here, we were Sunday nights at Messiah Lutheran just right by Shadow Park High School. And uh, we have been in this building since January, but this Sunday really is uh, fun for a lot of reasons. One, because of that, that uh, anniversary, but also we're going to do baptisms today. So uh, pretty excited about that. And I get to baptize, which is awesome. Uh, last week, if you were here, we really launched into our fall rhythm by prayer. And so we took the whole Sunday gathering and we broke it up into to praying, and we prayed for the city of Spokane, we prayed for other awesome churches in the city, uh, we prayed for ourselves, and then we, we prayed for one another. And that's really what we want our rhythm to be like as we head into the fall every year, is just to take some time to pray leading into our fall rhythm, and then also talk about vision. So if you're new here, this is actually a really good time, because we're going to talk about who we are and really where we're headed, but if you've been around for a while, this is also just a good opportunity to figure out, hey, where, where are we going as a church? So before we get started, let's just pause and pray. God, we are thankful for all the ways uh, that you are present with us. And we see it visibly, and we experience it, and we get to hear your truth. And I pray that you would be present uh, in everything that we do this morning, uh, whether it be music or through baptism or through receiving communion or just hearing uh, your scripture uh, we pray that you would be present in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and, up and, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 31. So the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, we'll pick up in 31. But uh, before we get there, and as you turn there, just a brief bit of context uh, like I said, we're, we're starting our vision series, and what we want to do as part of the vision series is really put out this phrase in front of everyone and then break it apart. So here's the phrase. We are a family of missionary disciples who live to see God's will done in Spokane as it is in heaven. That's the vision for River's Edge, that we are a family of missionary disciples who live to see God's will done in Spokane as it is in heaven. So each week, what we want to do is uh, really break this phrase apart and focus on the identities. And this week, we're starting with family. What does it mean to be a family? Uh, where we're going to pick up in Mark 3.31 uh, is in the middle of a story where Jesus is interacting with the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have accused Jesus of being uh, possessed by a demon. And then Jesus points out that their logic is flawed. But in the midst of that interaction, something really interesting happens. Jesus' family shows up. So that's what we'll pick up in 31. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister 
and mother. So Jesus is having this exchange with the Pharisees, and then his family shows up. And we actually have this note from verse 21 in Mark 3, where the family is actually coming to take charge of Jesus. They are coming because they, they think that he's gone a little bit too far, that he's just a little bit, maybe he's out of his mind. So his family is coming to take charge of him. And they show up and they intervene as Jesus is uh, teaching. And Jesus makes this really interesting statement about who his family really is. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And, and then he asks that as a rhetorical question. And then he, he looks around at the people gathered in a circle around him. Which it's an odd question because he grew up in a small town. And a lot of these people would have known his mother and his brothers. He grew up in a small town where everyone knows everyone. And so, so Jesus asks this rhetorical question, and then he says that these people are my mother and my brothers. He, he looks at his disciples and say, says, these people are my family. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother, is what Jesus says. And this is presented over and against his biological ties, which is, which is really interesting. And this actually isn't the only place in Scripture where we see that Jesus calls his disciples family members. I mean, in Matthew's Gospel or in John's Gospel, after the resurrection, Jesus uh, says, go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. So Jesus refers to his disciples in multiple places as brothers. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who is the creator of, of everything, who, he's the sustainer of life, he's the timeless, the uncreated, the magnificent eternal God. He has come, become human, and then he calls the people around him brothers and sisters. He addresses them as family, which we should, we should pause and think about for a second. Jesus, the one that we sing worship and praise to, that we just got done doing that, uh, the one, one who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, the, the one who is the Lamb of God, who is the rightful king of the whole universe, he calls you a brother and a sister. And that's really profound. In Romans 8, we get more language like this. Another beautiful example of where family language is the only right way to capture the sort of intimate thing that God has invited us into. God has invited you in, not as just some distant acquaintance, but actually, actually to be a part of his family, which is why Paul writes this in Romans 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory." So I've been reflecting on this theme for actually a, a couple months and really not on purpose, but what I mean is in looking forward to the vision series, um, what I didn't want to do is just kind of rehash a lot of the stuff that maybe we've heard before or we even did in the vision series last year. So we last year put this phrase up in front of everyone. It says, here's who we are. We're a family of missionary disciples who live to see God's will done in Spokane as it is in heaven. 
And through the, through the vision series, again, this year, what we want to do is look at the aspects of this phrase and the identities here and break it apart. But rather just, than just rehashing what, what we've probably already heard before or been told before, that you've been adopted into God's family, that he loves you, and that, that in light of that, we ought to love one another, uh, what I wanted to share was just something that God has been teaching me over the last few months, and really, really even heavily over the last couple of weeks, which is why I wanted to start with this kind of scriptural theme of God as Jesus as our brother, where, where Jesus actually uses that language. And I'm going to use the language of brother, but if you're a woman here, um, don't let that throw you off. You can sub in the language of sister, and, and don't be thrown off by even the, uh, the passage in Romans where it says adoption to sonship. The, the point that scripture is actually making there is that whether you are a free Roman male or you're a a Turkish slave woman, you are adopted into God's family with all the rights and privileges of a first century son, which for that culture is a huge deal. You're an heir to the family name. You're an heir to the the possessions of the family. There is a lot... Uh, that is tied in with that idea of adoption to sonship. So don't let the, the, don't let the language of it throw you off. I wanted to start with this theme of Jesus as brother because it's something that God has been showing me, like I said, over the last couple of weeks. And uh, what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks is just reading through the Gospel of Mark. So my daily Bible reading, been reading through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, not for any particular reason, I don't think, but I've just always identified with uh, the character of Peter. I don't know if you guys have uh, characters when you read through the scripture, you just kind of routinely, you see yourself in that character. And, and I often see myself in Peter, and I'm not really sure why, but over the, the past couple weeks, what I've seen as I've been reading through Mark is uh, just the way that Jesus treats Peter like a brother. And what I want to do then is if we see the way that Jesus treats his disciples as brothers, we can also then see how Jesus treats us as brothers and sisters and then that also informs how we ought to treat one another as brothers and sisters, if that makes sense. So we're not going to read through the entire Gospel of Mark. That would take a while. And thank you for some of you laughing like, oh, thank yeah. Um, but what I want to do is maybe just adequately, hopefully, just gloss over what happens um, with Peter through the Gospel of Mark. So Peter uh, is one of the disciples of Jesus. He gets, he's a fisherman originally, gets invited in to follow Jesus and Jesus treats him differently from the very beginning. Uh, Jesus treats him as a leader among his peers. Um, some of the examples of that were Peter gets invited to the Mountain of Transfiguration. Not everyone does. And Peter gets invited to the Garden of Gethsemane. Not everyone does. And at the end of Jesus' life, what, um, what we refer to as the Last Supper, there's this interesting set of interactions. Because Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed and murdered. And he's having a dinner with all of his disciples. He's having a dinner with all the people uh, that he's calling brothers and sisters. And, and he says to them, you will all fall away. So Jesus is having this, this deeply intimate meal, and he looks at them and says, you're all going to abandon me. And Peter says, even if everyone abandons you, Jesus, I won't. And Jesus' response is, yeah, you will. And Peter says, I love you, dude. Well, probably not dude, but he says, I love you. And, and I will, if, even if everyone else runs away and if, even if everyone else abandons you, I will not abandon you. I will not disown you. I will never leave you. And if you know the story, normally what we focus on 
is the fact that uh, Peter does. Peter does abandon Jesus. And we kind of focus on how, okay, so uh, Peter, uh, before even the, the rooster crows, Peter disowns Jesus three times. And so we go, oh, Peter, what a knucklehead. And then later we read about how Jesus reinstates Peter by, you know, by mirroring the fact that Peter disowns him three times. He, Jesus, after his resurrection, says, hey, do you love me? He says that three times. And there's this sort of reinstatement that happens. And that's in the Gospel of John. And, and normally, we take that angle, or at least normally I do when I read through the, the story. But what I've just recently noticed is after the, the Last Supper, the, the very next thing that happens, right after Peter says, I'll never abandon you. Jesus says, yes, you will. It won't even take that long. Jesus invites Peter into a, a really intimate moment. He, he invites Peter and James and John to go pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus, looking at the, the men who are about to abandon him and disown him and fall asleep while praying, are, he invites them in anyways. He, he invites them into this really uh, intimate moment and this hour of Jesus' deep distress in the, the, the few hours that Jesus has left before he's going to be murdered. He invites these, these weak and fragile men knowing that they will fall asleep and then they will eventually abandon him when the authorities come. When I was younger, um, and those of you who have siblings maybe can relate to this, I uh, would get invited along with my older brother to certain things. And I wasn't invited along because I was contributing to the conversation. Uh, I'm f- about four years younger than my brother. I wasn't invited along because I was as cool as them. And I couldn't hit the ball as far as they could when I got invited to the home run derby. I probably couldn't even hit it out of the infield. And I'd have to like pedal really fast on my Razor scooter just to keep up with the group. But my brother invited me along anyways. And I, I, I wasn't contributing to the group in any way, but my brother was, and he still is my brother, and that's why he invited me along. Now, we can get too carried away with that analogy and start comparing Jesus as our brother to like earthly experiences of brothers, and then we'd be like, well, does Jesus punch me in the arm, or does... Does Jesus shoot me with airsoft guns? My brother used to do that to me. Um, or does he like attack you with silly string in the middle of the night? No, Jesus doesn't do that stuff. So there is, uh, there's a limit to the analogy for sure. And that happens anytime we take kind of analogies way too far. But the title and the role of Jesus as our brother is one that can have a profound effect on how we worship Jesus and how we respond to Jesus and how we relate to Jesus and in how we relate to and respond to one another. Because when we begin to believe and experience that God has invited us into his family and made us co-heirs with Christ and invited us into this kind of brother-sister kind of relationship, that, that changes and has implications for how we worship, how we respond, how we relate to God. Jesus is our brother. He's not our enemy. He is not hostile to us. He's not our adversary. He's a brother you can trust. He's not just someone who is around when things are going well. He's someone who is there for you even when things are going badly. He's our brother not only when we do well, but also when we sin or when we abandon him or when we fall asleep praying. He is our brother and invites us along anyways. And even if we can think of like the perfect brother, what we would think of is this, this intimate bond that we would have. And 
someone we can trust with anything, and someone that we could even do terrible things against and sin against, and yet they're still there for us. And they know us well. And the perfect brother, Jesus, he doesn't betray, he's not vindictive, he doesn't harm, he doesn't retaliate, he doesn't take revenge. And if that's the way that Jesus relates to us as brothers and sisters, what does that mean for how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters? In addition to that passage we read in Romans, there are many places in the New Testament where uh, followers of Jesus are referred to as children of God. You and I are referred to as children of God or as brothers and sisters. And this is a crucial identifying factor for who we are and, and it's this sort of family relationship that defines who we are as a community. In the New Testament later, letters, you have Paul and James, James and John who address the letters to the Adelphoi, to the, to the brethren, if you read an old translation. In the NIV, it's brothers and sisters, because the, the old English brethren is meant to capture that. So, so you and I, in Christ, are brothers and sisters. That is how God describes you. And that is how the early church refers to one another. And so what I want to do is, is just focus on three main things for us here at River's Edge of what it means, if, if we are family, what this means for us. So three things. First, we are mutually committed to one another. Second, we're here for one another. And third, our family needs to stretch. So first, uh, we're mutually committed to one another. Jesus is radically committed to his disciples. Even though they let him down, he remains committed to them. And, and if Jesus is the model of brotherhood, then we should emulate him in how we relate to one another. Family or brotherhood or sisterhood comes with a, with a set of underlying commitment. And it's not written in a contract and it's not a membership, but it's definitive. I mean, think, for example, if mom called you up or brother or sister called you up and said, hey, I need help moving the couch. Or, hey, I had a really rough day. Can you go get pizza and ice cream with me? There's this, there's this sort of underlying commitment that we have because that's what it means to be a brother or a sister. So it's definitive, but it's not written in a contract. It's not written in like a thing that you need to sign. But this is what it means to be family with one another. And even just beyond helping one another, we, we have commitments to serve one another, to, to love one another, to stir one another on towards growth, to point one another towards Jesus, to pray together, to sacrifice for one another, to show up for one another, to support one another. All those one another commands that we see throughout the New Testament, we ought to be the types of people that just like Jesus models in his brotherhood towards us, we should be like those types of brothers and sisters towards one another. Second, we are here for one another. And that includes successes and failures. That includes uh, good times and bad times, uh, laughter and tears. Our missional community over the summer read this book uh, called Servant of All. And I think it was really helpful for a lot of reasons. But in it, there was this statement of how we view one another's success if we are family. And it's helpful if we think about how family functioned in, in the first century and how households functioned. Because in the first century, when you engaged in the public sphere or you were on teams or you were in a competition, you, you did so with and for the family and household. So Craig Hill, who's the author of that book, says this. 
Paul's repeated use of familial language, describing fellow believers as brothers and sisters and God as Father, undermines the quest for individual honor. Siblings were expected to rejoice in and to benefit from each other's success and not to compete with one another for glory. So, so with this mindset as family, we can truly be there for one another. And, and there's no room for comparison or competition or jealousy because we're all part of one household. But we're also here for one another in, in difficulty and trial. Uh, like we practiced last week, we pray for one another. And our hope is that in those relationships and in missional communities, that you, if you call River's Edge home, would have people here who truly care for you, who care for your soul, who care for your situation, who know you. The prayer would be that, that there would be people here that if you don't have anywhere else to go, you can live with them. Or if the medical bills just become way too high and you can't afford them anymore, that there would be people here who would support you. Because that's what brothers and sisters do. That's what family does. Third, our family needs to stretch. And I'm not like doing yoga. But what I mean by our family needs to stretch is, uh, first, that families are not one generational. So if we, again, go back to the, the model of like a first century family, how they viewed themselves was in light of where they came from, who came before them. And if we've been adopted into God's household in that kind of first century mindset, what that means is that our household here can't just be one generational. What I love about River's Edge is that, there's full, that we're full of uh, young, passionate followers of Jesus. And uh, if I had to take a guess, the median age here is probably somewhere in the 20s. And I love that. And I want more and more young people, college students, young professionals, to come to faith or to be a part of River's Edge. I, I, I love that and I want more of that. But we need older generations. We absolutely need more stretching as far as age diversity goes. So we need, I, I need, as a 27-year-old, I need people older than me who've been through those situations, who have wisdom, who've walked through them, and we all need that. And I know maybe I look old because my hairline's receding, but that's kind of me fishing for a compliment. That was bad. <laughs> but we need older brothers and sisters that's one way we need to stretch. But another way we need to stretch is um, we need more, more uh, diversity in socioeconomic status. So uh, we, the leaders of River's Edge, we want River's Edge to reflect the community and the city in which we're rooted. So I live about a quarter mile from here, and West Central is not the most affluent or upper middle class or even middle class area. And I can know, I know from experience, because I live so close, that there are people just right outside these four walls who, who one, just need to know they're loved, but two, need hope. And, and the, the goal of us worshiping here is not just that we would come here and then leave and have, have no impact on the community, but the, the hope is that by worshiping here and engaging in the community, we would actually have redemptive impact where we worship. What this means for some of us is that we need to come to grips with fear. So uh, Emily Myrie, who if you don't know her, she's great, she's a student from Whitworth, and uh, I told her I was gonna quote her. And she said something to me this summer that really challenged me, but I think was really impactful, and I, I wanna share it with you all too. 
And it was in the context of us talking about how we engage uh, with this community right around where we worship and where we live. And she said, you can't love someone if you're afraid of them. You can't love someone if you're afraid of them. And so for some of us, if we, if we were to actually do this and stretch in that way, it would stretch us. But I'm 100% confident that that's a good thing. We cannot be a family that guards our stuff or our space or, or what we normally do and lives at odds with or is afraid of different people because they look different or smell different or look in houses that we perceive to be junky. We have to be the type of people that opens our doors and welcomes all sorts of people in. And we will never, and, I, and I'm speaking to myself because those of you who know me well know that I've not arrived in this area, but we will never be able to invite people in as brothers and sisters if we're afraid of them. Lastly, I would love it if we just got a little bit more multicultural. So I love the picture that we get in Revelation, which is that every tribe and nation and language is represented worshiping God together. That's a beautiful picture. It's in part the flags. It's a beautiful picture of that. And, and the hope, it's not just a hope, it's not just uh, kind of amorphous, but there's real things that we want to continue to do, partnering with West Central Multicultural Seventh-day Adventist Church, the building that we meet in. We want to continue partnering with them. We want to continue partnering with Lutheran Community Services and with refugee resettlement and with, with uh, um, those families and those young individuals. We want to continue doing those sorts of things. Because our prayer is that we would, we would be the type of place where people from every tribe and nation and language and socioeconomic status or age or ability or disability or political persuasion or citizenship status or job status or gift set can come and feel a part of this family of missionary disciples. And in order to do that, we're going to be intentional about some of the things that we do to make sure that all people feel welcome here. So I know that we need to grow in all three areas, but, but this is what the vision series is for for laying out where we are headed. And in the next year, our prayer is that we would grow in terms of being a family that's mutually committed to one another, that we would grow in what it means to be there for one another in successes and there for one another in failure and difficulty and struggle, and that we would be a family that stretches this year. And so we thought uh, it would be fitting as we close to actually give an opportunity to celebrate those who have been added to God's family by placing their faith in Jesus and by celebrating baptism. So in my last four or five minutes, I'm just going to talk real quick about baptism. So our lives are filled with all kinds of, of symbolism and rituals and acts and ceremonies that represent an outward sign of some deeply foundational change. So take a wedding ceremony, for example. The, the wedding ceremony itself is not what marries the two individuals. And the piece of paper that you have to sign, it's a, it represents the legal status that the married couple has, but what actually happens to marry two people goes beyond the ceremony and goes beyond the piece of paper. But the ceremony is important. And the ceremony allows for vows and promises, for witnesses, for commitments to be made. And the marriage actually changes the people from just a man and a woman to a husband and wife. And, and that's shown in the marriage ceremony. In the Old Testament, there was an initiation ceremony, specifically for men, when they wanted to become a part of, the community, of God's community, Israel, or for when, when children were born 
into God's community. And we know this is circumcision. And for those of you who don't know what circumcision is, ask a friend on the way out. <laughs> I don't want to explain it. Um, both of those examples, circumcision and weddings, uh, are helpful analogies for how we think about what happens in baptism. When we baptize someone, there's, this, there's these examples that we get in the New Testament of what happens in baptism. So one of the images that we get, Paul tells us that it's sort of like how Israel went into the Red Sea and was brought out in redemption. So there's this going into the water and coming out in redemption and freedom, being brought out of slavery. That's one of the pictures that baptism represents. But another picture is, is how the nation of Israel, when they go into the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan River. And so they, they go into the water again, and then they come into the promised land to God's promises for them. And, and then Paul also talks about this uh, baptism as this place and time and moment when we're, we're buried with Christ and raised to new life. That that's what happens in baptism. Those are beautiful and deep pictures and just some of the many pictures of baptism that we get. Baptism has also been seen throughout the history of the church as this act in which we're initiated into God's family. And so if there was like an adoption ceremony for being brought into God's family, baptism would be it. And so it's not the water and the act that gets us adopted. I mean, that's my caveat. It's, it's, not, it's not like there's something magical to the water. Um, it's God's adoption of us in response to faith and repentance. That's what gets us adopted in. But the act is significant. Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make disciples, baptizing them. And in the book of Acts, when people say, what must we do to be saved? They hear the gospel and say, well, what, what should we do? The response is, repent and be baptized. And baptism is an act of obedience to Jesus. And it's the right response of faith. And it's a ceremonial act, it is. And it's where we see visibly what God has done, is doing, and will do for an individual. But it's not just an individual act. It's actually a communal act as well, which is why we're going to do it in the midst of our normal Sunday gathering. So we are actually, we have some people who said, hey, I want to get baptized, which I'm super excited about. And so there's some people we've talked to beforehand, say, hey, I want to I be baptized, and, and we're going to do that. But there's some of you here who... Uh, have never been baptized before, and as I'm talking about it, you're like, well, I've never done that. I want to do that. You can. So there's not like a long process leading up to it. What we'll do as I close and when we transition back to, to communion and singing again is I'll just invite you to meet me back through those uh, little curtains. Uh, for those who have said, yes, I'm going to get baptized, you can come back there too with your family or friends. We'll pray together. We'll have a conversation. But if you're just sitting here and you're like, hey, I've never responded in, in baptism and I want to be baptized today, you can do that. We have extra towels, we have extra shirts, and if we run out of towels and shirts, I will run home and get more towels and shirts. <laughs> I was baptized on Super Bowl Sunday of 2010. And on that day, I went to church and I was not planning on getting baptized. And uh, a leader at that church got up and said something very similar to what I just said. And said, hey, uh, if you've never been baptized before, you should respond in, in obedience. And I knew, I knew in that moment that that was what I was supposed to do. That, that God was drawing me in, that he loved me, and they wanted to pull me closer and closer in. And I didn't have it all figured out. And I'll tell you the whole story sometime later, but I did not have it all figured out. And that's okay if you're in the exact same place. For some of you, that is you today. And so just a few logistical things as I close. If that's you, or if you've said, hey, I want to get baptized, 
when we transition, what we're going to do is transition to receiving communion. So if you're new here, what we do every single week is we receive communion, the bread and the cup, because very similar to baptism, it's this, this ceremonial act where we remember what Jesus has done on the cross. And we come to this physical representation of what he's done. And so when we transition to that, I'm going to invite the, the band back up and we'll sing songs. But if you've already pre-planned on being baptized, go ahead and meet me back there. Or if you're like, hey, I, I want to do it today, go ahead and meet me back there as well. And we'll baptize you this morning. I'll invite you to pray with me. Jesus, we want to be the type of people who live up to the name brothers and sisters. And we repent of the ways that uh, many, many times we are not able to do that. Whether it be uh, because of situations or because of uh, just our own weakness or um, just not knowing, we want to be the type of people that truly respond like brothers and sisters to one another. We want to be family. And we have a sense of what that means moving forward. So God, I pray that you, through your spirit, would come and empower us to that end. That, God, your will would be done in this church. And God, I pray for the people that we're about to baptize, that you would meet them in the midst of this significant moment, um, this moment that we can point back to as this, this kind of step uh, as following after you in a very public, um, proclamatory kind of way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.